Army veteran Richard Fierro didn't hesitate. He tackled the gunman who opened fire at a queer nightclub in Colorado Springs. I will go towards the action and do what I can to help people. That's all I want to do. This person tried to kill everyone in that club. We'll hear from Fierro on how he subdued the attacker. It's Tuesday, November 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a man who grew up in Senegal is now an elected political leader in Spain, where he's helping lead a fight against the country's far right. Honestly, it is a lot of pressure. That's why I have to think carefully about every single word, every step I take. He's one of the few black people to succeed in modern Spanish politics. And the shockwave continues as favorite Argentina loses to Saudi Arabia in the World Cup. It's 401. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. Supreme Court has refused to block a request by the House Ways and Means Committee for former President Donald Trump's tax returns. NPR's Nina Totenberg has details. The court's action came in a two-sentence order, and there were no noted dissents. With all appeals avenues now apparently cut off, Today's action clears the way for the former president to turn over his tax returns to the House committee. While Democrats retain control of the House only until January, that is sufficient time for it to examine material Trump has long sought to block from public view. Trump filed an emergency request for the Supreme Court to intervene last month, but the court's order today leaves in place a unanimous ruling from the D.C. Court of Appeals, which said that the House committee's request for the tax returns was constitutional. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration's extending a repayment reprieve on student loan debt until the end of June. Also includes a pause on interest accrual. President Biden says the White House is giving the U.S. Supreme Court time to hear a case on his plan to cancel billions of dollars in student debt. The Department of Justice is asking the Supreme Court of the United States to rule on the case. But it isn't fair to ask tens of millions of borrowers eligible for relief to resume their student debt payments while the courts consider the lawsuit. For that reason, the Secretary of Education is extending the pause on student loan payments while we seek relief from the courts. In a statement, the U.S. Department of Education said repayments would resume 60 days after it's permitted to implement the program or the litigation is resolved. Russia is continuing to blame Ukraine for weekend shelling near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southeastern Ukraine. The criticism coming as the Kremlin says little progress has been made toward creation of a U.N.-backed security zone around the nuclear facility. From Moscow, here's NPR's Charles Maines. Speaking to reporters, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Russia would keep negotiating with the International Atomic Energy Agency, but said the risks of nuclear catastrophe at Zaporizhia lay squarely on Ukraine. The threat is coming from those who are bombarding it, said Peskov, adding that Ukraine's partners should push Kiev to pull back its heavy artillery. Ukraine counters it is Russia that has repeatedly fired near the nuclear facility and used the plant as cover to launch attacks. International inspectors found no immediate nuclear safety concerns following the weekend shelling, even as the IAEAs continued to push for a security protection zone around the power station. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The Dow closes up nearly 400 points or more than 1%. This is NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. All of the injured people remaining at South Shore Hospital following yesterday's SUV crash in Hingham are expected to survive. One person was killed when a driver crashed through the front of an Apple store. Fred Millam is chair of surgery at the hospital, which treated 18 patients. He says his team did an amazing job under tough conditions. 17 of those patients arrived in 47 minutes. Uh, five of them were in extreme critical nature. The rest of them had uh, various injuries. Uh, very few of them were minor injuries. Two people at the hospital remain in intensive care. Meantime, the driver was ordered held on $100,000 bail today. 53-year-old Bradley Ryan is charged with reckless homicide. He claims his foot got stuck against the accelerator of his SUV and he was unable to stop. Peabody paraprofessionals and the city's school committee have reached a tentative contract agreement. This comes hours ahead of a planned rally at a school committee meeting. The workers assist teachers in the classroom, in part by providing individual help to struggling students. The agreement includes a pathway for all paraprofessionals to earn at least $25,000 per year. More than two dozen Massachusetts law enforcement officers were denied recertification under the state's new police reform law because of pending matters, including disciplinary issues. That's according to new data from the state Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission. 133 others were denied because they were on administrative, medical or military leave. They will be able to get recertified when they return to duty. The transgender daughter of a military veteran in Maine is suing the government over a rule she says prevents her from accessing health care. A decades-old federal statute bars dependents of service members from using military insurance to cover gender transition surgeries. The woman's lawyers say the rule is outdated and that this is the first time it's being challenged. The Department of Defense declined comment. We'll have partly cloudy skies tonight and temps in the low to mid-30s. Tomorrow will be sunny and a little bit warmer with a high around 50 degrees. Then Thanksgiving Thursday looks like we'll have bright skies for the holiday. It should be mostly sunny with temps in the mid-40s. It's 47 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. On June 18th of last year, Serene Mbaye was sworn in as a member of Madrid's General Assembly. And from that moment, he became a powerful symbol of the fight against the far right in Spain. Selective admission of migrants is a shame. A man who grew up in a Senegalese fishing community, who worked in Spain for years without documentation, is now an elected political leader, one of very few black people ever to have succeeded in modern Spanish politics, and a target for the right-wing political party, Vox. In this speech, Serene talks directly to the members of Vox in parliament and says, I don't know how to tell you anymore, so I'll say it in English. Acts of discrimination are unacceptable. All peoples must be protected equally. We do not say welcome only, refi- only refugees. We say welcome all refugees. Serena Mbaye is not only a symbol of achievement. To anti-immigrant politicians, he represents a threat. 
Quieren hacer la foto de la foto del señor en Valle un símbolo. On the day he was sworn in, Rocío Monasterio of the Vox Party said, the problem isn't Serene's race, it's that he entered the country illegally. During Serene's campaign, the party posted on Instagram, we will deport him. That was an empty threat since he was already a Spanish citizen by then. But in some ways, that makes it even more insulting and also universal. Just a couple weeks ago, a French member of parliament was suspended for telling a colleague, go back to Africa. Serene Mbaye represents the connection among three major stories. We've been reporting on how climate change fuels global migration and that migration motivates the political far right. It's a journey that has landed us here in Serene's Madrid living room. It's full of potted plants and artwork from his children. He also has a vinyl collection that his daughter loves to play and dance to. She listens to music all the time. She gets on the couch and jumps as she listens. Sitting on that couch, he pulls up the speech on his laptop from the Spanish far-right politician. And as he listens to his colleague attack him personally, you can almost feel Serene's pulse jump. Who is this? This was your first day in the assembly. These are racist attacks, attacks that make no sense. That was more than a year ago. Has it continued every day since then, or have things gotten worse? It's every day. When I talk, they give a speech about how I am not from here. They don't want to admit that I am Spanish. And they will talk about Africa when I say something at the assembly. What does Africa have to do with Madrid? This trend is happening around the world. Far-right politicians are gaining power by vilifying immigrants. When Donald Trump announced his latest presidential run, he said, our southern border has been erased, and quote, we will be paying a big price for this invasion into our country for years to come. Italy's new government recently blocked migrants from leaving their ships, forcing a standoff with rescue organizations. In Madrid, Serene Mbaye feels this pressure every day. On the morning we meet him, he's helping to organize a festival with some Afro-Spanish artists and activists. They come out of the palatial building that houses City Hall, and we all walk together up a wide street towards a breakfast spot. The Spaniards passing us don't even try to hide their stares at a group of black people. Yes, there are many areas of the city where I notice the stairs when I'm walking down the street. And in certain neighborhoods, I would be the only black person. At the restaurant, our group orders coffee and toast. Serene quietly sips orange juice while the other guys at the table sing his praises. Now for me, Serene is the, the real expression of a type of African revolution. Justo Aliuddin, who goes by Yast, is a community activist, painter, and MC. He's known Serena Mbaye since long before the man entered politics. They met more than 15 years ago when Serene was an undocumented Senegalese immigrant working as a mantero, selling handbags and other goods off a blanket in the street. Can you describe for me the Serene you met when he was still a mantero, what he was like in those days? The man I met, I don't even remember his face really. Why? Because there is a system 
in which it's very difficult to meet the people. You understand? Yeah. Um, so the Serena I met, I, I couldn't see it apart from non-paper man. But why, what makes Serena special? The fact that he's, he's joining the political um, line in making him a lot more special. Serene, this is a lot of pressure. I mean, you've got everybody in Senegal talking about you as like the Malcolm X of African immigrants. You have everybody here in Spain talking about you as the leader of a revolution. It seems like a lot of pressure. Yo no soy nada. Me? I'm nothing. It's all about them. It's about the brotherhood we have found here. They're the ones showing me the path. I know you're very humble, but seriously, it must at times feel like a lot of weight that you are carrying on your shoulders. Honestly, it is a lot of pressure. That's why I have to think carefully about every single word, every step I take, because it's not just me. It's the whole community. After breakfast, we walk to a Madrid neighborhood where lots of immigrants live, called Lavapies. One of the guys tells us, if you try to go anywhere with Serene, you'll never reach your destination because he'll stop to talk to everyone he meets along the way. And it's true. He's all handshakes and high fives. He seems to know everyone, or at least they all know him. Like Kane Sheku, who grew up with Serene in the same Senegalese fishing village. He's a role model, he says. This guy taught me how to fish when we were kids. We'd go fishing together. Serene tells us he tries to visit this neighborhood whenever he has free time. Because if I'm in politics and I don't do the things I used to do before, people will see that I have changed. In the main square, a city crew is installing surveillance cameras on the lampposts. I have not done anything. I was just sitting in the plaza. A man named Babu Halo complains that this neighborhood is already over-policed. And the police come here with their cameras. I tell them they don't have the right to record me. This has to stop. They only record the faces of black people. He tells Serene, you have to do something about this. And so this lanky 47-year-old politician feels pressure from many directions. The far right, his community in Madrid, and also the people he left behind back in Senegal. We saw that for ourselves 2,500 miles south of Madrid in the town of Kayar. Here in his hometown, Serene is a hero. Everyone here knows him. Even the smallest baby here, if you ask him, he knows Serene Dar. A spear fisherman named Khadim Ngom walks us through the sandy, unpaved streets where rising sea levels have demolished buildings that face the water. A few blocks inland, we reach the six-bedroom house where Serene's family now lives. His mother, George Uf, flashes a gold tooth when she smiles. She gets her son on the phone, and their entire conversation is about people in town who need money. This person has an unpaid electric bill. That one needs school tuition. 
The requests pile up. When they get off the phone, she takes out baby photos and shows us a black and white picture of a chubby infant in fancy dress clothes. Oh my gosh, he's a baby here. Did you ever think that this little baby would grow up to be a deputy in the Madrid Assembly? Never. I never thought about that. How do you think about it now? That's God's will. To the people in his hometown, Serena's a singularity. Nobody else has accomplished what he's done. More than 2,000 miles north of that beach where he grew up, at his living room in Madrid, I asked Serene if he feels like he's reached the pinnacle. When we were in your hometown of Cayar, Senegal, we talked to lots of people who admire you. And I remember one said, thousands of people tried to go to Spain for many years. Many don't make it. Many of those who do make it struggle. There's only one Serene. And he made it sound like you are living the dream come true. Do you feel like you are living a dream come true, or would you describe it in a different way? Honestly, this was not my dream. But in life, this is what people call destiny. The world I dream of, it's a world where people don't suffer. Because every time I think of the southern border, in the Mediterranean, every time I think of hate speech, I say there is a lot of work left to do in this world. His term as a deputy ends next year. It's not clear what will happen. But even after the thousands of miles he's traveled, everyone who knows Serena Mbaye can say for certain, his journey is not over. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the U.S. Supreme Court refuses to block a request from Congress for former President Trump's tax returns. We'll have the latest. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And the holiday pops helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops. December 1st through 24th, HolidayPops.org. Stocks finished the day slightly up. The Dow gained 1.18%, 398 points, to end the day at 34,098. The S&P went up 1.36%, landing at 4,004. And the Nasdaq gained the same amount, ending up at 11,174. In business news, there's some good news on the jobs front across Massachusetts. Unemployment rates fell in 14 labor markets across the state between September and October, including the Brockton and Lynn areas. The rates remained unchanged in seven other labor market areas. Unemployment rose in three local markets, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, and Haverhill. The greatest job gains over the last year were in the Lowell area, Greater Boston, and Lemonster. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. 
Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. We have a pleasant late fall night in store. It'll be partly cloudy with a low around 34 degrees. Tomorrow should have sunny skies with temps around 50. And Thanksgiving looks like it'll be crisp and sunny with a high in the mid-40s. Right now it's 47 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Former President Trump's tax records are likely to be turned over to the House Ways and Means Committee. This is after the U.S. Supreme Court refused to block a request by that committee for the former president's tax returns. There were no noted dissents. The decision likely ends a multi-year legal battle between House Democrats and the former president. Joining us now to discuss it all is NPR Legal Affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Hey, Nina. Hey there, Mary Louise. All right, so this has been a long time coming. I will venture I'm not the only one who may have lost track of exactly (laughs) how we got here. Briefly remind us. Even I had to look back. The battle has been going on for over three years. So to put all this in perspective, every modern president since Richard Nixon, who got into real tax trouble, every modern president since then has made his taxes public. Except for Trump, who famously or infamously has always found a way to avoid doing that. And in 2019, Congressman Richard Neal, who was chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, made a request to the IRS for then-President Trump's tax returns for the years 2013 to 2018. Okay. The Treasury Department, then run by Trump's Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, denied that request on the grounds that it was not supported by a legitimate legislative person purpose. Two years later, Neil made an updated request with additional details about the justification for his request. The committee, he said, needed the information contained in Trump's tax returns to meaningfully evaluate the IRS's presidential audit program, which requires the taxes of every president to be audited. Of course, we've never had a president like Trump who had such enormous and diverse business interests and so many opportunities for conflicts of interest. So the committee said it was considering implementing greater legislative oversight of a president's financial activities. And on a second try in 2021, with Trump no longer president, the Treasury Department's Office of Legal Counsel determined that the IRS had to comply and turn over the tax returns to the House committee. Trump, of course, challenged the decision in court. He lost and appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, which today refused to block the House panel's request. Okay, so that's a glimpse of the long and winding path to <clears throat> get to today and yeah. the Supreme Court's decision. Do things move faster now? Well, the decision likely means that the returns will be released to the committee immediately or close to immediately. 
After all, the IRS, under a specific statute, has to comply with a committee request for a president's or anyone's taxes. We don't know when this this is going to happen exactly or whether the panel will make any portion of the taxes public, although there's no indication of that. But once the Republicans take over, Mary Louise, when they take over the House in January, I doubt they're going to have any appetite for tackling Trump's taxes. Anyway, maybe someone else's. I can imagine somebody else's taxes they might want to get. But that still leaves times for the Democrats to examine the Trump tax returns. I'm not sure from the committee's point of view it has, but it, but it, that it, it will find anything special, and certainly it won't have legislation. Right. Um, it, it at least has established a precedent, though, for a the key, future. A key point there, that even the committee will get their hands on these returns, but we may never see them. We don't know if or when we will. Just briefly, uh, you know, this, he's lost two previous cases at the Supreme Court over his taxes. <laughs> In one, he had to turn over his tax returns and other materials held by his accounting firm to a criminal grand jury in New York. But in the other case involving a congressional subpoena for his financial records, not just his tax returns, Mm -hmm. the loss was less clear, and they finally reached a settlement in September of this year. All right. And PR's Nina Totenberg, thank you. You're welcome. Books. What is not to love? Well, to help us figure out which 2022 books they'd love to recommend, NPR's books team brings us books we love. Andrew Limbong, who's the host of NPR's Book of the Day podcast, joins us now. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Wana. All right. So I get really pumped when that fall email hits my inbox Mm. that asks all NPR staff for our recommendations. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But for folks who do not know, tell us a little bit about books we love. Okay, yeah, so it's like a little different from, you know, your regular, regular top 10 countdown list of best books. Um, so instead, you know, we reach out to critics and writers and, you know, literally everyone here at NPR and ask them, like, hey, what books from this year did you think rock? And the books team here at NPR does the the really hard work of ingesting all of that and compiling all of those books into, like, spreadsheets on spreadsheets and then curating them into a giant list. I think I think this year we've got, like, more than 400 books on the platform. Okay, that is a really long reading list, <laughs> yeah. even for like the most dedicated reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, we're not, you don't got to read them all. You don't got to read them all. Um, I think the best feature um, of Books We Love, the platform, are these filters on the side. So you can select uh, books by these tags, you know, that are like book club ideas or tales from around the world or biography and memoir to narrow down the choices. So if you're looking for a book for yourself or buying a gift for someone else for the holidays, uh, you know, the filters make your job super easy to find the right book. Okay, so let's just dig into this thing. What books stood out to you this year? Mm-hmm. So I actually, I keep a Google Doc that's just a list of books I want to read. And scrolling around books we love this morning, <laughs> the, the, the list grew, you know, by a bit. Um, there's some interesting nonfiction books out there. One I want to flag is uh, Megan O'Rourke's book, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. It's a look at how uh, ill-equipped our country's healthcare system is in regards to helping patients with long-term chronic illness. And, you know, it's especially interesting in light of what we know or don't know about long COVID. Uh, on, the, on the fiction side of things, I'm super excited to pick up this book called Night Crawling by Layla Motley. It's about a teenager who finds herself at the center of a corrupt police sex trafficking ring. We actually uh, featured a conversation between her and NPR's Aisha Roscoe on the book The Day Pod a few months ago. 
And, and she was talking about how she was inspired by true events that happened inside the Oakland Police Department. So it's uh, pretty gripping stuff to read. And then I think you recommended a book, right, Juana? Yeah, this was my first time. And my pick this year was the book Tumble by Celia Perez. And it's this incredible book about a young girl named Addie who's trying to unravel her origin story. It's really oh. a book about what makes a family. And as it turns out, Addie's family legacy involves luchadores or professional wrestlers. And I have to say, <laughs> I am actually a real really big fan of YA books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a ton of those out there. And especially if you like lean a little younger for like kids books too. Um, I've got these nieces I always buy books for and books we love definitely like just like comes in clutch when I'm just like stressing about picking something yeah. out. Um, there's a few fun ones uh, for kids this year. Uh, there's this book called The Catalog of Hugs, which is by father and son duo Joshua David Stern and Augustus Harine Stein and illustrated by Elizabeth Lilly. <laughs> and it's, it's like exactly what it sounds like. It's a catalog of different kinds of kid hugs. And there's a Another book called uh, Skater Cielo by Rachel Katchstaller about this little girl who's a skateboarder who you know, eats it. She falls off her skateboard, but with some encouragement, you know, she gets back on. And Andrew, with a couple of seconds we have left, give us just one pick, one of your favorite books of this year. Uh, one of my favorite books this year was Latvona by Atessa Moshevig. If you know her, you know her writing. You know it's like gross and smelly and disgusting <laughs> and kind of funny if you're into that. All right, I guess it's time for me to hit my local bookstore. NPR's Andrew Limbong, thank you. Thanks, Juana. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, the veteran who stopped the gunman who killed five people in an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. We'll have partly cloudy skies tonight with temps in the low 30s. Tomorrow's looking quite nice for that Thanksgiving driving or last-minute grocery trip. It'll be sunny with a high around 50 degrees, and it'll stay sunny for the holiday Thursday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus, Friday through Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org, and La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fair with a modern twist. Drop off office lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston, lacuchara.com. Tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, have been protesting against the government in Iran, despite arrests and even death sentences. It's for freedom. It's for have a better future. It's for have a better days. I just want happiness, and I don't have it. No one has it. The voices of those who risk everything just by speaking up. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition, 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Biden administration has launched a six-week push to get more folks vaccinated before the end of the year against COVID-19. The new updated vaccines were released in September to better protect people against the various Omicron variants now dominant. But the latest data show people are slow to respond. Dr. Anthony Fauci says evidence the vaccine's work is clear, but you also need to update your protection. If you get vaccinated with measles or infected with measles, the duration of protection is measured at a minimum in decades and likely for a lifetime. 
That just happens to unfortunately not be the case when you're dealing with coronavirus and particularly SARS-CoV-2. So you need to update the protection that we know is good protection. The White House push to get people vaccinated this winter is particularly focused on senior citizens who are at greater risk. The U.S. top diplomat at the World Cup in Qatar is criticizing FIFA for threatening players with yellow cards if they wear rainbow armbands in support of LGBTQ rights. NPR's Michelle Kelman with more. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says soccer brings the world together, and so it is, in his words, concerning that FIFA has put restrictions on freedom of expression at the games in Qatar. It's especially so when the expression is for diversity and for inclusion. No one on a football pitch should be forced to choose between supporting these values and playing for their team. Blinken was there for the first U.S. match and held talks today with his Qatari counterpart on a range of security issues. He says he also brought up human rights and labor issues, a conversation he says will continue even after the games end. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Baker administration will open a temporary intake center next month in Devons. The shelter will be at the former U.S. Army base and can accommodate up to 60 families experiencing homelessness. The site will provide stays of a few days plus case management services before families are transferred to more permanent lodging. The state is responding to increased demand for emergency shelter due to an uptick in immigrant arrivals to Massachusetts. The Charles River Watershed Association released a report today that finds communities along the river will experience an appreciable increase in flooding within the next 50 years. WBUR's Paula Mora has more. Due to climate change, mid-sized storms that occur about every 10 years are expected to have higher volumes of rain. The new report says by 2070, these storms could flood critical infrastructure in Needham, Newton, Westwood, Waltham, and Watertown. Julie Wood is with the Charles River Watershed Association. The whole reason we did this project is because right now we're making a lot of decisions without having information about what the future holds. Wood says flood simulations show the communities will need a bold and regional approach combining different strategies to avoid flood damage. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. Nonprofit Food for Free is teaming up with Harvard University Dining Services today to collect and redistribute 3,500 pounds of unused food. Food for Free's Sam McDermott says volunteers are gathering this afternoon at Annenberg Dining Hall to repackage the food. The program in whole makes use of vegetables, starch components, and grains, as well as proteins. Ultimately, those components are reassembled into a balanced meal that can be frozen, redistributed to partner agencies across Boston. McDermott says the food will provide roughly 2,300 meals to people in Cambridge and Boston who may be experiencing food insecurity. According to Food for Free, one in 10 Massachusetts households does not have enough to eat on a regular basis. It's 4.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. 
Looks like a pleasant night tonight. We'll see partly cloudy skies and temps around 33 degrees. It'll warm up a little bit under sunny skies tomorrow with a high around 50. Right now, right now it's 46 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The mass shooting at a queer nightclub in Colorado Springs might have been much worse had it not been for U.S. Army combat veteran Richard Fierro. As most people ran away from the gunman, he ran toward the shooter, who wore body armor and carried an AR-15-style rifle, disarmed and subdued him with the help of a club performer. Mr. Fierro and others could not save everyone. His daughter's boyfriend was one of the five people killed. Two of his friends were shot and hospitalized. His wife and daughter also sustained injuries. But he saved lives. And Richard Fierro, who's now a civilian, joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered, and I'm really sorry that we're meeting under these circumstances. Oh, uh, thank you, and, uh, and yeah, so am I. I can imagine that reliving the events of Saturday night might be difficult, but if you could tell us about that night at Club Q, who were you with and what brought you there? So my daughter's best friend, uh, Wyatt Potted Plant, was uh, performing, and, and I had never seen him perform, so it was kind of cool. It was his birthday, and uh, my daughter was so excited to have her boyfriend, me and her mom, and her friends, uh, Chip and Joanne. And we went to the club to have a good time. I went from dinner to the to the club to watch the drag show. And then after it was finished, we the girls wanted to dance. So the girls were dancing and everybody in the club was dancing. They were doing their thing. And, you know, we were all hanging out and having a great time. And, you know, that, that was our intent. It's it's a safe space for everybody, right? And so we don't have any preference to who we're hanging out with. We just want to hang out with people that with a good vibe. And that's what we did. A celebratory evening, a good vibe, as you say. What happened when the gunshots began? What happened there? I kind of went into, you know, combat mode and, and just tried to stop somebody from hurting. And at that point, that whole that whole group in that building was my family. And I had to stop. I had to do something, right? And I, I didn't do everything I could. It's five people right now don't have their family with them. And I, the only reason I'm talking to people is because I want those families to know that I care. I cared at the moment of crisis that, that their family member was going through. I just want to know somebody cared whether it was, it was me or anyone else in that club doing something heroic. That's the people that are heroes. I'm just a, a dude that did what I was, you know, I was trained to do that. I, I, I do that because that's what I have to do. I'm, I protect my family. You described everybody who was at Club Q that night as your family that you were trying to protect. And I mean, it's hard to know what any of us would do in a moment like that until faced with it. But I can imagine that not everyone could or would respond in the way that you did. Where did that come from? Yeah, so in, when, when you go to multiple deployments, as a soldier, you're tested under fire. And, and that's what the training's all about. For you to be tested under fire, can you handle it? Woman, man, gay, straight, doesn't matter. We're all in there. At that moment, we're humans. We're being threatened, and we need to 
either be able to eliminate that threat or fail that test and not do that. I felt like I've been tested before. Doesn't mean I'm I'm better than anyone. Doesn't mean that I, I you know I can do extraordinary things. What it means is I knew that physically I respond that way. I will go towards the action and do what I can to help people. That's all I want to do. I understand that your daughter lost her high school sweetheart. Raymond Green Vance was among those killed that night. And first of all, I just want to say I'm so sorry for your family's loss. And could you tell us about him? What kind of person was he? Raymond was a good man, young man, trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. You know, just like every other little kid. Um, My daughter's in the same boat. They were in high school together. She loved Raymond. We loved Raymond. He spent holidays with us. I watched him play football. This is every American family. You you have people that are introduced in. You have girlfriends, boyfriends of your children that you you have to learn to you know accept and love. And we did. Raymond was in our life for six years, and his mom can talk to you. Raymond is the the young man he was. I I just know for us, we loved him. He t- always took care of my daughter, and I trusted him with her. And that's that's not something easy for a, a person to say when it's their daughter. I'm thinking of you and your friends' injuries, your family. How are you all doing right now? We're hanging in there. My brother came down, and that helped me, um, and he's helping them. And, you know, we got to get Cassie up and down and in the wheelchair and roll her around. And she's still got a broke leg, and we got we to figure that out. And we're trying to visit our friends in the hospital still, Chip and Joanne. And people are amazing. A young lady came with a, a little bouquet of flowers from her garden, you know? That, to me, means more than anything else. You know, I, that's that's what it's about. At this point, law enforcement officials have not definitively stated any motive in the shooting, but attacks like this one, they don't happen in a vacuum. How are you thinking about what could have caused this? I don't, because evil's evil, right? I've seen evil downrange. I've seen evil here. Evil's evil. I'll be honest. Motive doesn't matter. This person tried to kill everyone in that club. That's evil. And to see evil is the worst thing in your life. That was what makes me mad, is that we shouldn't be that way. This country is is plentiful. There's no way we should be like that. Over the last few years in the United States, there has been this onslaught of legislation and hateful rhetoric targeting LGBTQ people in the United States. I know that you've said that evil is evil, but do you see any link between that rhetoric, that legislation, and what happened in Colorado Springs on Saturday night? So I, I'm not a political person. I'm a soldier. And, and even as, a, as an officer, you, you know, you were trained to never show your political point of view because you're going to serve the commander in chief. I don't have a political point of view on that. I, you know, politics is politics. I, I don't care about that. What I do care about is that I go to war. All my comrades went to war with me and we went to fight for the freedoms of the people in this nation. And those freedoms include loving who you want to love, being with who you want to be with, doing what you want to do achieving your dreams and goals, whatever they may be. And that to me is what needs to be used for everybody. Not a party, not a group, everybody. Can you tell us about what you've heard there from people in Colorado Springs as a community? How is everyone coping? This is hard for everyone. This is not something that anybody wants to ever go through. Nobody wants to go through this, but I'm not the first and will probably not be the last. We just had Uvalde. I mean, this is ridiculous, you know? I, it's just not, it's not good. What do you and your family, what do you and your community need right now as you seek to recover? 
you know, thoughts and prayers are nice. I, I just I, I answered this question earlier, and I said, listen, the, the, the little bouquet of flowers I got I, from a lady that I hadn't met and I lived next door to for 15 years. How about, how about everybody this, this Thanksgiving, you know, find that hero uh, around their table and, and do an action for somebody next to them. And I think that will resonate. You know, I, the people here, they'll, they're going to get supported. People are going to send them the things they need, and, and they should. But how about we just, you know, make, make, a, make a hero at the dinner table uh, for Thanksgiving? Father, husband, co-owner of a craft brewery, defense contractor, U.S. Army veteran, and the man who confronted a mass shooter in Colorado Springs, Richard Fierro. Thank you for talking to us, and we wish you and your family well. Thank you, and I appreciate you taking the time. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. The man who crashed his SUV into an Apple store on the South Shore on Monday now faces criminal charges. One person died and 20 were injured after 53-year-old Bradley Rhine drove his car through a glass storefront at a busy shopping center in Hingham. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer is here with the latest. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Lynn. It's nice to see you. You too. So Ryan was arraigned today in Hingham District Court. What happened there? So Hingham resident Bradley Ryan was charged with a felony, reckless homicide by motor vehicle, and he was also charged with a lesser count of reckless operation of a motor vehicle. And the judge today decided on a $100,000 bail. Now, prosecutors said he doesn't have much of a criminal record except for this one charge of driving under the influence in Vermont. That was a couple of years ago. And what are authorities saying about whether this was apparently accidental? Ryan told police it was an accident. He said he was shopping for eyeglasses yesterday morning at Derby Street Shops. That's a shopping plaza huge with more than 60 stores. And the prosecutor, Dave Cutshaw, recounted what happened next, according to uh, what Ryan told police. He stated that while driving in the area of Barnes and Noble, his right foot became stuck on the accelerator and the vehicle accelerated. He stated that he used his left foot to try to brake, but was unable to stop the vehicle and the crash through the front of the Apple store. Ryan hasn't been accused of driving under the influence. His breathalyzer test came back negative for alcohol, and he also agreed to a blood test. We don't know the results of that yet. Um, He also says he doesn't have any medical conditions that would make it hard for him to drive. And he told police that his foot once got stuck uh, while he was driving on a highway before. Uh, His attorney today called it, quote, an unfortunate accident. An unfortunate accident that led to a a lot of victims. What do we know about them? Yeah, so one person died. Uh, He was 65-year-old Kevin Bradley from New Jersey, and he's a construction worker. And at the time, he was moving a barrier into the store when the SUV plowed into him and the shop he was working at the time. Um, And 20 others were injured. Most of them ended up in South Shore Hospital. Two are in the ICU there. Four others were taken to bigger Boston hospitals because they needed more specialized care. Uh, uh, Dr. Jason Tracy spoke to Press today. He's the emergency. uh, He's the chair of emergency medicine at South Shore Health. And he gave an update this afternoon on the patients at his hospital. From pretty significant head injuries uh, to many orthopedic uh, injuries, including arms and legs, 
uh, lots and lots of fractures, uh, chest trauma, uh, lots of uh, pulmonary injuries. Uh, and so there's a long uh, road to recovery for many of the patients who are in our facility. So the injuries are pretty serious, as you hear. But the good news is that Dr. Tracy expects everyone to survive. No amputations, as far as he knows, or none will happen. And we don't know much about the conditions of the four patients who are currently in uh, in city hospitals in Boston. Mm, but a tough time with the holidays arriving here. How has the crash affected people in Hingham? I went by the Derby shopping district today uh, just to see what it was like and how people were feeling. And I ran into Suzanne Leone, who shops there at least twice a week. Listen to her. So I was very concerned about it, and I was in the area and all the helicopters and the police cruises all over the place. So it was, you know, it gives you, it makes you uneasy when you hear something like that. So. But Leone was back to do some grocery shopping today, and despite crews, they were fixing the shattered Apple storefront today working. Um, the district felt mostly normal. There was Christmas music playing in the background, and I went into the restaurant and the stores that were near the accident site. They still had customers. and. But there was one reminder of what happened. It was across the street from the accident site. I saw three bouquets of fresh flowers with a note that said, sending all our peace and love. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer, thank you so much. Thank you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Provider Group, an insurance, brokerage, and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com and Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. When you give a modest monthly gift to WBUR, you're giving a very big gift to our entire community. You're giving everyone the journalism that is the oxygen of democracy. And when you support WBUR today, you'll get a little something as our thanks a year of The New Yorker in your mailbox and on your digital device. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, we'll hear from a science reporter who's diving into the science of wildfires in a new podcast. We'll have partly cloudy skies tonight with temps dipping to the low 30s. And tomorrow's looking pretty nice to head out for holiday groceries. It'll be sunny with a high of about 50 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at MathWorks.com careers. And the Umbrella Stage Company, presenting Jonathan Larson's Tony and Pulitzer-winning rock musical Rent. Runs now through December 4th, theumbrellastage.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. These days, it is easy to feel like the world is burning all around us. Like, literally here in California, where in the past decade, eight of the state's 10 biggest wildfires on record have burned. But there's actually a lot that we can do about that. We often talk about the wildfire and it's climate change, like it's an act of God. No, own up to and take responsibility for what you've created and contributed to. The new podcast, The Big Burn, explores the history of wildfire management in the West, starting with the very first people on that land, indigenous people. All the things that we would do, or even that any fire scientist would do right now, Native people have always been doing to care for the landscape. 
And it looks at how we can use that knowledge to protect our forests and lands today. All right, guys, what are you firelighters standing around here for? <laughs> Go forth and protect our own biomes. <laughs> well, here with me now is Jacob Margolis, host of the Big Burn podcast from KPCC and LAS Studios. Hey, Jacob. Hey. So, you know, when we talk about wildfires, we normally talk about, like, their devastating consequences because people, they lose their lives, their homes, wildlife, habitat disappears. But in your podcast, you talk about there being good fires versus bad fires. Can you just explain what is the difference the way you understand it? Yeah. So we often frame all fires as bad, but the thing is fire is absolutely necessary for healthy and resilient landscapes here in California. Lots of the fires that we're seeing, especially the bad fires that end up moonscaping everything, are a result of not allowing enough good fire on the landscape. And that good fire would be something like national park staff going out and actually deliberately setting uh, fire in a forested area to kind of clean up debris that would otherwise drive these really big and violent fires. It's something called prescribed burning, which is really important. Okay, and you actually attended a prescribed fire in Northern California. Can we just hear a clip of that? You can see when it hits leaves that have been sitting in a shady spot, the fire kind of has trouble catching. But then it hits a blackberry bramble that's been sitting in a patch of sun and it just explodes. Even from 10 feet away, the heat is just too much, and you got to move. Yeah, I believe it was a uh, bump down the line. I'm in the middle. Led by the pros, the dance becomes clear. They light something on fire, it rages, and eventually calms down and smolders, clearing out brush, leaving the larger trees licked by fire, but still alive. I mean, Jacob, as someone who's covered wildfires for so many years. Was it strange to see this intentional fire? Did it change your perception of fire at all? Oh my gosh. So I've, I've, I've grown up only around fires that have been absolutely terrifying, destroying neighborhoods. Yeah. So as soon as they lit this landscape on fire, all this adrenaline just flooded into my body. But as I saw it kind of settle in, I saw the experts do what they needed to do. I was truly in awe. And it, it, it made me sad ultimately that I've only felt like this really deep fear around fire most of my life. And I really hope that every listener out there gets to experience a prescribed burn because it completely changed my perspective of how how I feel about fires in general. Well, Cal Fire only started ramping up its prescribed burning in the last decade or so. But as you talk about in the podcast, indigenous people in our state have been studying and using these techniques for ages, right? Yeah, any idea that people have of California like before colonizers showed up is this untouched Eden or however it's framed by John Muir is, is wrong. The landscapes here were healthy in part because for millennia, Native American tribes throughout the state had actively managed our landscapes. They'd do things like they'd pull up oak trees to help with acorn production, and they'd, they'd regularly use fire to clean up debris to do things like uh, kill bugs and promote certain types of growth so that they could harvest the materials for medicine, things like baskets. And and so they've had this really complex and deep understanding of how to keep the world around them healthy that Westerners have often disregarded. Exactly. And what's so illuminating about this podcast is you go into a lot of, well, frankly, the racist history that paved the way for decades of fire suppression. Can you just explain that connection some more, especially as it related to the California gold rush? Because I found that just eye-opening. 
Yeah, Native Americans in California had, you know, this really intimate relationship with the land from both spiritual and practical standpoint. And these practices had been developed and shared over thousands of years. And then they were torn from the land violently, especially after gold was discovered around 1850, which Kutcher Rissling Baldy, a Native American scholar, told me all about. You get a massive influx of primarily white male settlers. So they're finding ways to get at as much gold as they can, and they're clear-cutting forests, they're destroying habitats for wildlife, and then they're removing Native people from the different areas by, in some cases, they're taking water cannons and spraying their villages off the sides of mountains. God. It was a genocide that was endorsed by the government, and after Native Americans were removed from their lands, their burning practices were also prohibited, which marks the beginning of what is a century and a half of fuel buildup in our forests that now, in conjunction with climate change, is driving the moonscaping fires we're seeing. Well, you go on to describe the buildup of a sort of fire industrial complex that's dead set mm -hmm. on putting out fires as soon as they start. Can you talk about how that began. Yeah, fire was this uncontrollable thing on landscapes we wanted to control for things like lumber. So in the early 1900s, uh, you see this big buildup of the U.S. Forest Service firefighting force, the establishment of wildfire suppression techniques, the building of fire lookouts, and we really have this framing of fire as the enemy to be destroyed. It's really codified in the 1930s when something called the 10 a.m. policy is put into place. And this is an order that all fires need to be put out across the continent basically as quickly as possible. And so after that, we start using leftover machines of war like helicopters and planes to start fighting fires and build up these army-like fire suppression forces. And this is all happening in conjunction with us pushing developments further and further out into areas that do burn. And the thing is, as we've seen, you can't put out all the fires, no matter how hard you try. So now we're dealing with the consequences of all that suppression and we're dealing with what I'd say are anti-fire attitudes, if you will, um, that don't leave room for nuance a lot of the time. That's right, because even though there is more awareness today of good fire and traditional Native American management practices, there is still largely a culture of fire suppression, which guides how the state manages fire and all the expectations of people who live here in California. A lot of them want to see fires go away. How do you unwind all of that, especially in an era where wildfires are getting larger and, and more destructive? Yeah, I, I just think we've lived in an unrealistic place with fire for so long that we're being like forced to reckon with the reality we need to accept. We're not going to suppress our way out of it. We need to stop thinking of fire as only as the enemy. We need to let some fires burn instead of putting them out right away. And we need to do more prescribed burns. And in turn, people have to be okay with smoke throughout more of the year with the additional risk that prescribed burns bring because though they rarely escape, it does happen. So Ultimately, at the end of the day, we do need a radical rethinking of fire. It is starting to happen. But my feeling, to be honest, is that it's not happening fast enough. That was Jacob Margolis, host of the new podcast from LAS Studios and KPCC called The Big Burn. Thank you so much for your work, Jacob. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting A Christmas Carol, a new adaptation highlighting Dickens' time in Lowell, November 30th through December 24th, mrt.org.
I'm Robin Young. What can we expect when it comes to COVID this winter? Well, infectious disease specialist Peter Hotez says it's time to look at Europe, where cases are rising. The difference there, he says, is that the spread is being caused by a number of different variants. What does that mean for vaccines, holiday precautions? His thoughts next time, here and now. Tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As many Americans prepare to gather around Thanksgiving tables, infectious disease experts wonder if the holidays will bring on a triple-demic. We're facing an onslaught of three viruses, COVID, RSV, and influenza, all simultaneously. It's Tuesday, November 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. We'll have the latest on the respiratory risks coming up. Also, a Colorado state rep reflects on the anti-LGBTQ incidents and rhetoric she's seen in the state. Steve Inskeep talks with former Vice President Mike Pence, who's out with a new memoir, about how his faith has informed his political career. And Republican wins in state Supreme Court races could shape not only abortion and voting rights, but also the balance of power in Washington. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration is announcing student loan payments, interest, and collections will remain on pause for a few more months. Here's NPR's Sequoia Carrillo. Student loan payments have been frozen for the majority of the COVID-19 pandemic. When the Biden administration announced a sweeping loan forgiveness plan back in August, they also announced what they said would be the final extension of the payment pause to January. Now, however, they're announcing one more amidst legal hurdles to the program. Payments will now resume in one of three ways. 60 days after the administration is allowed to cancel federal student loan debt for qualifying Americans, 60 days after the litigation around the program is resolved, or 60 days after June 30th of next year. The administration is appealing a lower court's decision to vacate the program in hopes of getting the debt relief plan back on track. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. The Supreme Court is weighing in on the release of former President Donald Trump's tax returns, handing a defeat to Trump, who'd called the request from a congressional committee politically motivated. Justices denied Trump's emergency application to block a lower court ruling that upheld the request by the House Ways and Means Committee for the records as a justified part of the panel's work. Meanwhile, the Trump Organization has pleaded not guilty to charges of carrying out tax fraud over a 15-year period. The Biden administration is launching a six-week push to get more people vaccinated against COVID-19 with updated shots. NPR's Tamara Keith explains the emphasis is on senior citizens. The updated COVID vaccines released in September better protect against the variants of the virus now dominant, but uptake has been underwhelming. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is retiring next month, says the evidence is clear. We know it's safe. We know that it is effective. So my message and my final message, maybe the final message I give you from this podium, is that please, for your own safety, for that of your family, get your updated COVID-19 shot as soon as you're eligible.
As part of what the White House is calling a six-week sprint to get people vaccinated, there will be paid advertising and outreach to nursing homes. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Attorneys for collapsed cryptocurrency exchange company FTX were in federal bankruptcy court in Delaware today. FTX filed for protection from creditors after traders pulled $6 billion from the platform in just three days. And rival exchange Binance announced a rescue deal. The collapse has left millions of creditors wondering whether they'll ever see their money. According to one lawyer, FTX was run as a personal fiefdom of former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried with upwards of $300 million spent on real estate, including homes and vacation property for senior staff. Stocks gained ground today in quiet pre-holiday trading. The Dow up 397 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The man who crashed his SUV into an Apple store in Hingham says his foot got stuck on the gas pedal. Yesterday morning's crash left one man dead and more than a dozen others injured. 53-year-old Bradley Ryan was arraigned today on charges including reckless homicide. Bail was set at $100,000. It's a slow ride for some on this busy travel day ahead of Thanksgiving. The Mass Pike westbound is slow from Alston to Auburn. That's a 90-minute ride. 95 North is slow from Weston all the way to Linfield. That will take you 55 minutes. Other area highways are seeing typical afternoon delays. If you're flying out of Logan Airport today or tomorrow, Massport's director of aviation has this advice. Give yourself a little bit more time. Ed Frenny says 1.2 million people are expected to fly in and out of Logan over the holiday period, with today and tomorrow being the busiest days of the stretch before Thanksgiving. And Frenny says it's a good idea to avoid driving to the airport. We urge our customers to use public transportation, such as the MBTA Blue Line and the Silver Line. We also operate five Logan Express sites. Massport advises people to get to Logan at least two hours before a domestic flight and at least three hours early for an international flight. A Worcester program that provides shelter, food, and housing for women and their children is serving its annual Thanksgiving dinner at this hour. Abby's House expects to serve more than 60 women and children at the event. Development Director Kelly Whalen says it's the program's first fancy sit-down holiday meal on china plates instead of in disposable containers since the pandemic started. It's festive, it's special for the women, it's dignified, and it's very, very inspiring to witness the women, you know, enjoy the meal, to witness our volunteers and members of our kitchen staff prepare that meal with such love. Whalen says Abby's House plans to double the capacity of its emergency shelter from 9 to 18 women's beds in the next year because need has increased in the pandemic. It also runs almost 80 units of supportive housing. Well, tonight we'll see a pleasant late fall night. It'll be partly cloudy with a low around 33. Tomorrow, we should see perfect conditions if you're hitting the road, rails, or skies to head to your Thanksgiving destination. We'll have sunny skies with temps around 50 degrees. And Thanksgiving should be crisp and beautiful. Looks like it'll be mostly sunny with high in the mid-40s. It's 46 degrees right now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Vigils are being held across the state of Colorado this week after the deadly shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs. 
Club Q was a safe space for queer people in a country and at a time that can feel very threatening. Just this year, more than 300 bills targeting the LGBTQ community have been introduced across the country, and candidates in this year's midterm elections used hateful and discriminatory language when referring to LGBTQ people. This is something that Colorado State Representative Brianna Titone has been talking a lot about. She's the state's first openly trans legislator and joins me now. Welcome. Thank you, Juana. First, I just want to start by saying I'm really sorry for what you and your community are going through. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. It's uh, It's been a, a process of healing uh, in the community, uh, but we've had a lot of really uh, positive gatherings uh, and remembrances. It's kind of helping us get through, and uh, we're going to try to get on the other side of this stronger. I want to start by asking you about Club Q and spaces like it that exist in communities big and small across this country. What is the value of a queer club in a place like Colorado Springs, and what happens when the sanctity of that kind of space is violated? Well, uh, Colorado Springs has uh, a very long history of very conservative roots. Uh, Lots of uh, military installations, uh, the Air Force Academy, and there's a lot of other uh, very strong Christian uh, organizations that are based out of there. So when most people think about Colorado Springs, they think about those really strong Christian values. And that really conflicts with the LGBT community. So having a place like Club Q and, and other places like this uh, in a place where there's a, a lot of discontent uh, for the LGBT community. Uh, Having a place where you can go and be yourself and express yourself the way you want and enjoy the the drag performances and things like that is so important. And that sanctity was uh, violated. I want to ask you about a tweet that you posted the day after the shooting, and it reads, I'm going to quote it here, when politicians and pundits keep perpetuating tropes, insults, and misinformation about the trans and LTBGQ community, this is a result. Tell us what you see happening in your state. Well, um, you know, that was directed at uh, our Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. Uh, She has been spouting out a lot of different, uh, very strong and targeted language against the LGBT community ever since she got into office. And, you know, we see a lot of other places around Colorado doing the same thing. Uh, Florida and Texas, for example. Uh, We're seeing a lot of this rhetoric that's being happening and people are afraid. They're, They're nervous about being themselves and they feel like they're being pushed back into the closet. And that's what we really need to try to really you know, take take stock of what we're saying to people and how we're making people feel. And she represents people like that. And she's doing a disservice to them by not supporting them and, and just making fun of them and, and re- just being uh, mm. a, a jerk about it. It's, it's, not, it's not good. In the days since this tragedy, what have you been hearing from people in your community? You know, I, I've heard a lot of people uh, just express a lot of fear and just uh, just devastation. But we've been uh, through this before, through other events like this. And we come together as a community. We support each other. And the LGBT community is really supportive. And there was a really big event in Denver that happened, uh, a vigil for, for the club. 
And there were so many people that they had to start late because they couldn't get in the mm. building fast enough. And uh, that support network is super important right now for everyone. In the about 30 seconds that we have left, I'd like to ask you, as a lawmaker, what do you think needs to happen now to help ensure that queer people in your community and elsewhere, that they feel safe, that they are safe? We are going to do everything that we can to reinforce uh, the policies that we have, examine this situation and what went wrong and what went right, and understand how we can change our policies to make sure that these kinds of things can be prevented because that's what we really need to focus on is yeah. how we can stop these from happening in the first place. That is Colorado State Representative Brianna T. Tone. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. To virus news now, specifically the fact that three viruses instead of just one are looming over this holiday season. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein brings us this update on the prospects for a so-called triple-demic. For two years, Thanksgiving ushered in very unwelcome guests, devastating waves of COVID. No one thinks this year will be anything like those dark pandemic winters, but the country is facing something entirely new, an unpredictable mashup of old and new respiratory pathogens. We're facing an onslaught of three viruses, COVID, RSV and influenza all simultaneously. Dr. William Schaffner is an infectious disease expert at Vanderbilt University. We're calling this a triple-demic. RSV crept back first, infecting lockdown babies and their older brothers and sisters with little immunity, overwhelming pediatric emergency rooms and intensive care units from coast to coast. The first big flu season in three years started early, too, sickening more kids with a strain that looks like it could be bad for their grandparents, too. That's swamping more already understaffed, pandemic-spent hospitals. Here's Lynette Brammer from the CDC. Flu hospitalization rates right now are the highest we've seen for this time of year in the past decade. And now, Thanksgiving is coming. Dr. William Schaffner again from Vanderbilt. These holiday celebrations, with all their travel and their close contact, usually function as virus accelerators. We're spending a lot of time with each other, laughing and breathing deeply, and that's an ideal environment for these respiratory viruses to spread to others. And, of course, there's COVID, still sickening tens of thousands and killing hundreds every day as new Omicron subvariants are taking over that are even better at getting people even if they've been faxed, boosted, or previously infected. The real question that we have is, what is this all going to mean for COVID? Dr. David Rubin has been tracking COVID at the Policy Lab in Philadelphia. Are we going to see a January-February resurgence of COVID that's going to be fairly significant? That may yet still be coming. Immunity from all the COVID vaccinations and infections should blunt a new surge of serious illness, especially, Dr. Ashish Jha at the White House says, if people get one of the new bivalent Omicron boosters. I'm hopeful, given where we are, that we're not looking at something like last winter. But look, at the end of the day, Mother Nature gets the final word on these things. And the new boosters aren't finding a lot of takers. Same for flu shots. Yeah, I think it's a really worrisome situation looking to the weeks coming ahead. Jennifer Nuzzo at Brown University's Pandemic Center knows how 
done, everyone is going into a third pandemic winter. We can't just resign ourselves to assuming that it's going to happen no matter what. We can very much take action to prevent a rise in hospitalizations and deaths. Like, sorry, Zooming for Thanksgiving if you're sick, doing one of those rapid tests the morning before hugging grandma and grandpa, and, says Dr. Tina Tan from Northwestern, keeping that mask candy. If you're not eating or drinking, it's probably a smart idea to protect the immunocompromised, the infants, as well as the older individuals in the household. Now, here's the good news. RSV may already be peaking, and the flu could peak early, too, before colliding with a new COVID surge. There's even a theory RSV and the flu could help stifle COVID like COVID crowded out those viruses the last two years. Fingers crossed for one of those scenarios to be thankful for this year. Rob Stein, NPR News. President Biden is kicking off the holiday season this week, including hosting a Friendsgiving dinner with military members and their families in North Carolina. NPR's Deepa Shivaram traveled to Cherry Point Marine Air Station for the event. The air hangar at Cherry Point looked a little different for special guests. A Marine band played jazzy Christmas music, and a few hundred service members and their families were sitting at tables covered in red and yellow tablecloths. Buffet stations were set up with a Thanksgiving feast, which was about to be served to them by the commander-in-chief. By the way, I'm serving mashed potatoes, so come to my place. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden visited the air station as part of a program called Joining Forces. It's one of the First Lady's efforts to support military families. Cherry Point is home to about 9,000 military personnel and just over 8,000 of their family members. Before serving dinner, the president thanked them for their service. The American people have no idea the sacrifices you're making. One percent, one percent of you represents 99 percent of the public. You're all volunteers. You all just show up. The Bidens often talk about how they are a military family, too. Their late son, Bo Biden, was deployed to Iraq in 2008. The First Lady says she knows what it's like to be away from family during the holidays. So even though you're away from your families at home in your home states, we know that you're here with your family here because military is family. Celebrity chef Robert Irvine helped host the dinner with his foundation, which provides support for military members, veterans, and first responders. On the menu, slow-roasted bourbon brine turkey, sweet potato casserole, there was a smoked ham and butternut squash, and the mashed potatoes with roasted garlic served by the president. And the food, according to Dewan Orkane. It was amazing. Yeah. But it wasn't quite as relaxing as dinner with family. It's like having your boss in room with you at the same time. It's kind of hard. Thanksgiving with military members is just one holiday tradition for the White House. On Monday, the First Lady will reveal the White House Christmas decorations. But first, the Bidens are celebrating with their own family, spending Thanksgiving in Nantucket. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Cherry Point Marine Air Station, North Carolina. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, Steve Inskeep speaks with former Vice President Mike Pence, who's out with a new memoir, about how his faith has informed his political career.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Stocks finished the day on an upswing. The Dow gained 1.18%, 398 points, to end the day at 34,098. The S&P went up 1.36%, landing at 4,004. And the Nasdaq also went up 1.36%, ending at 11,174. In business news, a developer is withdrawing plans to build a huge distribution warehouse in Hudson. People living near the site filed a lawsuit last month seeking to stop the project. Hudson Planning Chief Christina Johnson says developers believe they faced an uphill battle to get the build permitted. The land on which the warehouse was to be built is owned by Intel, the computer chip maker. Intel previously used the site for manufacturing and research. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, opening this Friday. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We'll have a partly cloudy night tonight. Cold but not bitter. The low will be around 33. Tomorrow will warm up a bit more. Temps will be around 50 degrees. Thanksgiving should be really nice, mostly sunny with temps in the mid-40s. And Friday, a chance of rain. It's 45 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Former Vice President Mike Pence is considering a presidential run. He would seek the Republican nomination against Donald Trump, the president he once served. In a memoir, he's telling his story of January 6th, 2021, when he ignored demands to overturn Trump's election defeat. He discussed his role in that election on today's Morning Edition. Pence also talked about his life with our own Steve Inskeep. We met at the Indiana State Capitol where Pence once served as governor. He grew up in the small city of Columbus, Indiana, and his book, So Help Me God, describes his youth. He was overweight and unhappy about it, he writes. A kid out of place, but also eager to rise. That kid will always be in me. And he's one of the reasons I have a fundamental distrust of my own ambition. He lost the weight and won speech competition sponsored by the Optimist Club. He also says he grew full of himself and struggled to reconcile his ambition with his evangelical faith. He ran for Congress, lost, and later publicly recanted negative campaigns. In 2016, he agreed to serve as Donald Trump's running mate and vouched for him to other evangelicals. Donald Trump is a good man, and he will... In our talk this week, he no longer called Trump a good man, but says he is still praying for him. Much of Pence's memoir dwells on the way that his faith shaped his conservative politics and view of the world. One of the most interesting chapters in this book is called Blessed. <laughs> you laugh, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting chapter. Um, Do you like the title? <laughs> it's a fascinating title, and it begins with a quote, a biblical quote about persecution. <laughs> and in the course of the chapter, 
which is about your faith and people's responses to your faith. You say you've been mocked, that you were the focus of a mania about your faith, that you faced hostility and intolerance, and that Christians generally were insulted and demeaned, and also that your faith had been misunderstood. <laughs> what is it that people misunderstood? Well, let me say, Steve, I've never heard any of that from you. But when my wife was attacked for teaching at a Christian school, when one media outlet after another uh, ridiculed our Christian faith from time to time, I was always struck by that because, you know, as I traveled around America, the words I most often heard were people would reach out across a rope line or stop me on a street corner and say, I'm praying for you. I mean, this, this is a nation of faith, different faiths. But the American people cherish faith in, in the overwhelming majority, and yet it, it, it seemed to be uh, a subject of uh, a fascination by some in the liberal media. But I, it was always a blessing to me because the, the, the net effect of it was, as I would learn traveling around the country, I, I, I was always reminded that some of the criticism from those on the left about my deeply held religious beliefs would invariably remind people that I, who shared those values and those beliefs, that we shared something in common. When you said you were misunderstood in the chapter, I believe you were talking about people in the LGBTQ community. Is there something on issues having to do with uh, sexual orientation and gender that people misunderstand about you? Well, I write an entire chapter uh, in the book about our experience here in Indiana with the passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. You know, I believe President John F. Kennedy said to lead is to be misunderstood. In 2015, the Supreme Court affirmed a right to same-sex marriage. Pence was then governor of Indiana and signed what was seen as a response. The state religious freedom law said no person or church or company should have to bear a, quote, substantial burden on their religious beliefs. Critics asserted that that allowed discrimination for religious reasons, though Pence tried to defend the law on ABC. Yes or no, should it be legal to discriminate against gays and lesbians? George, you're, you're following the mantra of the last week online, and you're trying to make this issue about something else. What I am for is protecting, with the highest standards in our courts, the religious liberty of Hoosiers. Facing overwhelming public pressure, the governor signed follow-up bills that assured protection. I don't support discrimination against gays or lesbians or anyone else. Pence still insists the original law did not discriminate. He adds that in recent years, the Supreme Court has supported religious concerns like the ones he raised. A Colorado baker, for example, who famously declined to make a cake for a gay wedding, won his case. And that was even before the Trump administration added three justices to the court. I will tell you, I've been encouraged that the Supreme Court has been striking a balance on the issues of religious liberty and individual rights but if there's anything people don't understand well about the Pences is to know Karen and Mike Pence, to know our family, we love everybody. Um, my faith tells me to love your neighbor as yourself, and that's something we aspire to do every day, whether we agree with every view or every value of the people that we meet. One thing that occurred to me as I read that chapter is that some of the words you use to describe the way you've been treated I feel that I've heard from people who identify as lesbian or gay or trans, mm -hmm. that they faced mm -hmm. hostility or a mania, that they've been mocked, that they faced intolerance, that they were insulted, mm -hmm. they were demeaned. You probably followed the news of the nightclub shooting in Colorado mm -hmm. 
just in the last few days. Heartbreaking. Um, what would you say to reassure your fellow citizens who feel that way? Well, I, I do believe that it's, it, it adheres to the American character to show tolerance. It's just who we are. For many Bible-believing Christians, we perceive what I call the um, intolerance of tolerance, that in the name of tolerance, people are intolerant uh, of Toward people like you, traditional you views. And I, I, don't, I don't argue for a moment that people on the other end of that debate have felt the same way. It's why one of the reasons is that, that I think we need to get to a place where we recognize again what, what really the First Amendment is all about, and that is it's, it's the right to live, to work, to worship according to the dictates of your conscience and to respect one another. How do you grade your party, particularly this year, on that issue of tolerance? I'm thinking of the governor of Utah, a Republican, who vetoed a bill having to do with trans sports and was overridden. And as part of that, issued a message in which he said, I want to show compassion for people, even if I don't agree with them. And also, it seemed to me, he was saying, I don't understand why this is even important. Why are we legislating on something that involves so few people? The suggestion being that a small number of people were being demonized. How would you grade your party on that? I think, I think our... I think our party has made it clear that the doors of the Republican Party are wide open. I mean, I remember being at the Republican National Convention when the president acknowledged the support of the LGBT community, and there was rousing applause at that Cleveland convention. Steve, you remember. You were there. You know, The administration reversed uh, trans issues in the military, for example, programs that were attempting to encourage tolerance there. Well, I, and, and, and I uh, respect and support that decision. I just think we, we always need to put military readiness and the mission of our military first. The Trump administration prevented trans people from openly serving, arguing their presence would interfere with military readiness, though the Pentagon found their service consistent with that. The Biden administration now allows them to serve. Former Vice President Mike Pence is considering his future. His memoir, So Help Me God, is seen as a possible preliminary to a presidential run. That's NPR's Steve Inskeep in conversation with former Vice President Mike Pence. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be a nice late fall night for the traditional Faneuil Hall tree lighting ceremony taking place this evening. The first such ceremony since 2019. Opening remarks start at 6. Temps will be dipping into the low 40s, then to the low 30s overnight with partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high around 50, and Thanksgiving should be quite nice. Temps in the mid-40s with mostly sunny skies. It's 45 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus, Friday through Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org, and Downtown Crossing, Boston, your holiday destination, featuring the Snowflake Crossing Ice Festival, December 16th and 17th, downtownboston.org. The problem is that RSV is really making its way around the country when we're also looking at new variants of COVID that are coming up and COVID cases are starting to pick up. And this is one of the most intense flu seasons we've seen in a very long time. So you've got basically three big respiratory viruses all competing for attention. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8.
on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden says his administration will extend a pause on federal student loan payments set to expire on January 1st for an additional two months, while the White House fights a legal battle to save his student loan forgiveness plan. It aims to cancel up to $10,000 in federal debt payments for those with incomes of less than $125,000 a year. Biden says he won't give up despite challenges from conservative opponents. As Americans continue to recover from the pandemic, my administration has been working to provide student debt relief to millions of working and middle-class families across the country. But Republican special interests and elected officials sued to deny this relief, even for their own constituents. But I'm completely confident my plan is legal. But right now, it's on hold because of these lawsuits. More than 26 million people already apply to have their student loans partially or entirely wiped out with 16 million approved. Senator Lindsey Graham testified today before the special grand jury in Georgia investigating efforts by former President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn results of the 2020 presidential election. A member station WABE Sam Greenglass reports lawmakers, the lawmaker from South Carolina has been resisting calls to testify for months. Senator Graham's lawyers have spent more than four months in court trying to block his testimony. The challenge reached the U.S. Supreme Court, which paved the way for this appearance. Prosecutors here want to know more about two phone calls from Graham to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger after the 2020 election. A judge has ruled that prosecutors can ask about any coordination he had with the Trump campaign or any efforts to pressure Georgia election officials, which Graham denies. The special grand jury is expected to wrap up its investigation soon. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The man who crashed his SUV into an Apple store in Hingham yesterday now faces criminal charges. Bradley Ryan was charged with reckless homicide with a motor vehicle. That's a felony. He also faces a lesser charge of reckless driving. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. At a court hearing in Hingham today, a judge set Ryan's bail for $100,000. Prosecutor Dave Cutshaw says Ryan told police it was a tragic accident. He stated that while driving in the area of Barnes and Noble, his right foot became stuck on the accelerator and the vehicle accelerated. He stated that he used his left foot to try to brake but was unable to stop the vehicle and the crash through the front of the Apple store. Police say Ryan's breathalyzer test came back negative, but they are still investigating. The crash killed one person and injured 20 more. Most of the victims are still in the hospital. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Lowell is considering a proposal to lower the speed limit to 25 miles an hour on city-owned roads. The city council is scheduled to vote on an ordinance tonight. If it's approved, Lowell will join dozens of other communities in the state that have passed similar measures. Peabody paraprofessionals and the city's school committee have reached a tentative contract agreement. This comes hours ahead of a planned rally at a school committee meeting. These employees assist teachers in the classroom in part by providing individual help to struggling students. The agreement includes a pathway for all paraprofessionals to earn at least $25,000 per year. 
The tribal chairwoman of the Wampanoag tribe of Gayhedequina has been re-elected for a fifth term. Cheryl Andrews Maltese fended off her challenger by a vote of 151 to 127. The election was held Sunday. By the time her new term is complete, she will be the longest-serving chairperson for the tribe since it was first recognized by the federal government. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Skies will be partly cloudy tonight and we'll have temperatures in the low to mid-30s. Tomorrow will be sunny and a bit warmer with a high around 50 degrees. Thanksgiving looks like we'll have bright skies for the holiday, mostly sunny with temps in the mid-40s. Friday, things will turn wet with a chance of rain earlier in the day and then more likely come afternoon. Right now, it is 45 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. North Korea's nuclear weapons program is, like most things in North Korea, shrouded in secrecy. So it is not 100% clear whether the regime in Pyongyang has the kind of long-range missiles capable of delivering a nuclear warhead to the U.S. mainland. But... Twice this month, North Korea has test-launched a rocket that experts say could potentially reach the United States. The tests have been widely condemned by the U.S. and allies. That has not stopped the North from continuing to develop its missile arsenal. NPR's Anthony Kuhn is following all this from his base in Seoul, South Korea. Hey there, Anthony. Hi, Mary Louise. I want to start with the latest North Korean missile test. This was Friday. What do we know about it? North Korea claims that this was a successful test of its Hwasong-17, which is the largest missile in its arsenal, launched from a massive 11-axle launcher, and it flew about 620 miles east, but it went up more than 3,700 miles, plunked down about 120 miles off the coast of Japan. Experts believe if they had flattened out the trajectory, it could be capable of reaching anywhere in the continental U.S. and could be capable of carrying multiple nuclear warheads. We should note that this caps a period of unprecedented activity by North Korea, including more than 65 missile launches so far this year by the U.S.'s count. Perhaps one of the most interesting things is that Leader Kim Jong-un took his wife and daughter to watch the launch. Now, North Korea has never told its people that Kim has any children. South Korean intelligence believes he has three, of which this was the second one. Uh, And the message North Korea appears to be sending here is that the nukes that North Korea has developed are a sort of national asset, which are going to be bequeathed to future generations of North Koreans, will therefore be safer and protected from enemy aggression. Okay, I want to underscore that this was a missile that was tested last week. It did not carry a nuclear warhead. This was not a nuclear test. How many years now has it been since North Korea tested an actual nuclear weapon? 
it's been five years. It was in the last one is in 2017. And in 2018, Kim Jong-un declared a moratorium on testing. In 2019, at the end of the year, Kim said he was no longer bound by the moratorium. He hasn't broken it yet. But if he plans to advance his nuclear weapons programs and develop the weapons he says he's going to do, he has to test more nuclear warheads. So people are expecting the seventh one anytime. This would be the seventh. Okay. Has North Korea, Kim Jong-un, or anyone else in the regime said what the goal is here with all the testing? Like, what, like what is the big picture strategy? Well, after the most recent test, the official Nodong Shinmun newspaper put it this way, the goal is to prevent children ending up on the streets foraging for food after losing their mothers in enemy bombardments. Now, that's a reference to the Korean War, and what they're saying they want is a deterrent against nuclear attack or invasion by the U.S. and South Korea. Uh, Also, we should note that Kim Jong-un said in September that he has no intention of bargaining away his country's nuclear status. And since nobody is succeeding in getting Kim to freeze his nuclear programs, much less roll them back, we may just have to wait until he's finished work on his arsenal and see what he does with it. Huh. We've been speaking with NPR's Anthony Kuhn in Seoul. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Louise. All right. Well, listening along to Anthony's reporting uh, with us has been Victor Cha. He is the Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Victor Cha, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Um, you just heard me ask my colleague in Seoul about North Korea's possible endgame. Let me put the same question to you. What do you think it is? Well, I think it's everything that Anthony said. And the only other objective I would add is that I think by threatening the United States homeland with nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles, North Korea also wants to try to raise doubt in the minds of Japanese and South Koreans about the credibility of U.S. extended deterrence commitments to its allies in the region, such that South Korea will be weaker. Talk to me about timing and whether North Korea might have concluded that the U.S. is distracted by internal divisions, political divisions, economic challenges, uh, might have concluded the West as a whole is distracted by war in Ukraine, among other challenges. Does North Korea see a window here to accelerate testing? Oh, I think they certainly do. There are a couple of things. I think the first, as you mentioned, the war in Europe, uh, and then also the situation in the Taiwan Straits clearly has preoccupied the Biden administration, and North Korea sees an opportunity there to carry out these tests because they they know the Chinese and the Russians are not going to support UN Security Council resolutions as they have in the past. The other is that I think for the North Koreans, they see opportunity whenever U.S.-China and U.S.-Russia relations are not going well. They see opportunity in drawing closer to China and Russia when relations are better between the United States and China, they constantly fear abandonment. They constantly fear that the United States and China, the two big powers, are going to cut a deal that sells North Korea down the river. So I think they see two opportunities here. One is the distraction of the war in Europe and the situation in the Taiwan Straits, and then the competitive poor relations between the United States and China makes them believe they're going to get a lot of support from Beijing. Well, let's talk about leverage. If the U.S. would prefer that North Korea not build a missile capable of reaching the United States, what, if anything, can the U.S. do about it? Well, it is. It's a very difficult situation. I mean, I think the increased exercising is important for defense and deterrence, but it's not going to stop the missile testing and the missile launching. The only thing that really has historically stopped the testing has been 
when they've been engaged in some sort of negotiation with the United States, they do not do as much testing and they don't do as many provocations. Unfortunately, the North Koreans don't seem to be interested in any negotiations. The Biden administration has reached out many times to try to get a negotiation or even a dialogue going with North Korea, and they simply do not answer the phone. And what about China? Where does China's leverage stand at this point, and how might they use it? I think China has a lot of leverage on North Korea in terms of their economic capabilities, but the Chinese clearly don't appear to be willing to play ball. In many ways, they've decoupled from the North Korea problem and said, you know, this is basically your problem. We're not helping you, and that's the price that you pay for taking this, you know, much more competitive strategic competition relationship with the Chinese. So they're really using it against us rather than using it against the North Koreans. So without wishing to be alarmist, does all of this add up in your view to make a seventh nuclear test by North Korea not just possible, but probable? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, they've tested the Hwasong-17, as Anthony said, which is their largest intercontinental ballistic missile, you know, with the daughter there and everything. And all of our commercial satellite imagery shows that the preparations at the nuclear test site in Pungeri have all been completed. And it's just a matter of when the North Korean leader wants to do the test. And I would imagine that they would do that as sort of the culmination of this R&D and this uh, missile testing operation exercise that they've been engaged in all year. We've been speaking with Victor Cha of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also a professor at Georgetown University. Professor Cha, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Unlike the U.S. Supreme Court, where justices are appointed, many states elected new state Supreme Court justices this midterm. In recent years, these races have grown more expensive and more openly partisan. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports on how GOP wins in Ohio and North Carolina will influence state policy and even the balance of power in Washington. This year, Ohioans re-elected three Republican state Supreme Court justices. That means they'll keep their majority. But who is at the head will change. Ladies and gentlemen, Ohio's next Chief Justice, Sharon Kennedy. Sharon Kennedy is a former police officer. She's spoken at anti-abortion events while on the bench. On election night, she promised to expand on her work with veterans and make the courts faster and more transparent. It is morning again at the Supreme Court of Ohio. Thank you for your time. The Supreme Court of Ohio already leaned conservative, but Kennedy is likely to pull it further to the right, says Jonathan Enton, law professor at Case Western Reserve University. Justice Kennedy was perhaps the most conservative justice on the court. Kennedy will now be the one presiding. For example, if the court hears a challenge to Ohio's ban on abortion after six weeks and when it evaluates new voting district maps. The outgoing Republican chief justice sided with Democrats and tossed out proposed maps, not once, not twice, but five times for unfairly advantaging Republicans. With Kennedy at the helm, GOP lawmakers may get those maps after all. Here's Enton again. It's pretty clear that elected officials 
at least the Republican elected officials, have been waiting out the court. Here's where Ohio's justices influence the rest of the country as well. Those maps not only shape which party controls the state legislature, but also how many Democrats and Republicans Ohio is likely to send to Congress. And margins in the U.S. House of Representatives are slim. Douglas Keith with the Brennan Center for Justice says that means state court decisions like this one could tip the scales in Washington. These courts have significant power, especially in this moment, to determine how our federal government is functioning, not just the state government. Ohio is just one example of how high stakes these state Supreme Court races have become. That's because the U.S. Supreme Court has pushed some key decisions down to the states. Keith says while these races always had some campaign donors, they're now getting a lot more funding from national partisan groups and PACs. The fact that even more of this money is opaque should be especially troubling given the fact that Judges aren't supposed to operate like other political actors. This year, Democrats spent big to hold benches in Illinois and Michigan, and major spending helped Republicans pull off a dramatic flip in North Carolina. It's a seven-person court. It went from being four Democrats and three Republicans to being five Republicans and two Democrats. That's former Republican State Supreme Court Justice Bob Edmonds. He says he's seen the court become more politicized since he lost a race for re-election in 2016. In North Carolina, the new Republican majority on the state Supreme Court is likely to hear many significant cases on that state's own voting districts, on education. But Edmund says among the most important are cases dealing with voting rules. Which impact where a person can vote, uh, how they can vote, what they need to do to be able to vote. That hits home in a way you wouldn't necessarily expect. He says that's because it gets at whether American voters feel free to vote and like their votes count. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up at 7, Ticketmaster has stopped selling Taylor Swift tickets amid a mess of a presale and sky-high ticket prices. We'll look at concerns about a music business monopoly. That's On Point at 7 here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton with state-of-the-art BL2 lab space that frees up biotechs to focus on innovative treatments for difficult diseases. LabShares.com and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. In sports, a surprise at Patriots practice today as longtime center David Andrews hit the field following a nasty thigh injury in Sunday's win against the Jets. There had been reports he might be done for the season. Still no word on whether he's expected to play when the Patriots visit the Vikings Thanksgiving night. It'll be partly cloudy with temps in the low to mid-30s tonight. Tomorrow's looking quite nice, sunny with a high around 50. And Thanksgiving is looking mostly sunny with temps in the mid-40s. A chance of rain Friday. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. 
I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. If WBUR is indispensable in your daily life, make it a priority in your year-end giving. A monthly gift will keep you grounded in facts and new ideas. As our thanks, get a year of The New Yorker on your digital device and in your mailbox at a 40% savings. It's a limited time offer, so get in on it while you can at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For watchers of the Olympics, Tom Daly has never disappointed. In fact, he is the UK's most decorated diver. The pandemic revealed a different side to Daly. With no fans in attendance at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, the camera often cut to Daly, sitting in the stands, knitting. Now, this was not just a gimmick. Daly says knitting helped him win the gold that year. He spoke about that with NPR's Alyssa Nadworny, also about knitting and crochet tips, tricks, and patterns in his new book, Made with Love. So knitting helped you win the gold in Tokyo? How? Yes. <laughs> Honestly, it was when I first started knitting, I had no idea of the impact that it was going to have. Initially, it was because my coach said that I'm terrible at sitting still and resting and recovering, and I need to find something where I can just sit still. So it was my husband that suggested that I try knitting because he's a filmmaker and people on set while they're waiting, they sometimes do some knitting. So I was like, you know what, I'll give it a go. And it just turned into my mindfulness, my meditation, my calm and my way to escape the stresses of everyday life and in particular going into an Olympics. Huh. Can you take us back to that like first piece you ever made? What what was the moment that you started to be like, oh, this is going to work for me? Well, actually, the first piece I ever made was a scarf for my mum. And I initially, I found it extremely difficult, like just <laughs> to be able to have the patience and the concentration. But once I learned, it kind of like went flying from there, honestly. And the whole reason that Made With Love started was because when I was finished with the scarf, I wanted to sew something into it that my mum could know that I had made it. So I went online to order some of the labels that normally you can sew into like clothes that like are, like personalized ones. And I had to order a stock of 50 of them. So I thought I need to get something <laughs> where I actually makes it worth getting them. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to put Made With Love by Tom Daly. So that was where it came from. And I learned from YouTube. So learning like self-taught really. And every project I learned a new stitch, a new skill. And then I learned how to crochet. And then after that, I started designing my own things and... Before I knew it, it was something that I was completely obsessed with. Every moment that I had to myself, I was able just to be able to switch off and get my knitting needles out. And it just takes me to a place of like complete calm and tranquility, honestly. Yeah. Do you have tips for how people can make knitting and crocheting get them to that peace and tranquility, that practice of, of mindfulness? Yeah, it gets to a point where like once you learn the basics and know what you're doing, you can either follow patterns or you can make squares or you can make blankets or take it to the next level and start designing your own things. But honestly, once you learn the basics of knitting, it's basically pulling loops through other loops with one piece of string. So once you know the basics of it, it just becomes very mindful and you get this kind of like pitter patter of the knitting needles and you just get the flow and you can pass hours. Honestly, I now look forward to traveling or I look forward to moments where I can, I like, I'm, I'm never bored. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the most meaningful patterns or projects in the book for you? For me, there's lots of different things in there. There's lots of sustainability things too, being able to reuse your old t-shirts, cutting it up and 
making yarn out of that and then creating something new out of it, being able to upcycle your old clothes, basically with techniques about embroidery and duplicate stitching. But some of my favorite ones in there are just some of the very basic scarves that are, you know, using mohair so that they look really like they <laughs> feel and look like quite like expensive, but you've made it yourself and you've done it. And then there's also the some of the tank tops in there and the jumpers. It's also one of those things that sometimes with knitting, it has this expectation of being for older people and a little bit mm. fuddy-duddy and you you get these things. But all of these patterns in there, I like to think are like are things that you'll actually wear and will <laughs> you'll look forward to getting out there. And like, for example, if you were to get the book for a grandparent, like your grandparents or your parents or whatever it may be, they might actually start knitting you things you'll actually wear um, <laughs> or you can actually start making things for yourself. And you guys have, have kids now, right? So there are some kid patterns in there. Yes. So there's a couple of the jumpers I, I designed for kids and adults. And there's also even a dog hat in there. <laughs> and there's also like homeware. So there's blankets and cushions, plant pots even. So you name it, there's something in there for everyone. Made with Love is, it's not just the book title, right? You also kind of made a business from this, right? Yeah, exactly. So right after the Olympics, very quickly, we set up something where I could pass on my passion and my designs for other people to be able to make. So on bytomdaily.com, you can get kits where I sell the yarn, the needles and the pattern and everything you need in order to be able to make your own jumper, your own scarf, your own hat and all of the designs that I've made. So now it's kind of taking it to the next level with a book for people to be able to start using all kinds of different yarns. But it's yeah, it's been something that I've been so passionate about and excited about being able to pass on that passion that I have and hopefully be able to get other people being mindful with their knitting as well. It feels kind of wild because like you're a diver. Like, did you ever think that you would be like running a knitting business? If somebody had told me five years ago that I would have even known how to knit, I would have probably <laughs> laughed in their faces. So yeah. the fact that it is now like my next passion, like I feel so lucky to have found a second passion away from diving and now knitwear design and fashion are like the things that I am like most passionate about. Hmm. What are you making right now? Any special gifts for the holidays? So I've been making all kinds of things, actually, and I'm trying to make like a little bit more out there editorial things. And I've just <laughs> recently made, you have to like bear with me here. There's two things I've made. There's one like kind of chainmail-esque, very like meshy type knit with crystal balls and Ooh. disco ball kind of vibe, which is quite, <laughs> it's a lot. And then I also made a, like a balaclava, which Ooh. was like hot pink with sleeves. Wow. And spikes all over. So, and it's, and that's very, yes, it's very weird and hard to picture, but I just love the fact that you can just be totally creative with it. And if you think of something, you can make it. And that's the beauty of it, really. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm not a knitter, but what is the first thing that I should make? Like what, and what gear should I get? You know, the easiest thing to make and the best place to start is with like a scarf because, you know, you're going to be going in a straight line. You just have to learn one stitch and off you go. And honestly, all you really need to get is some yarn, some knitting needles, and you'll be able to make a scarf by the end of it. Yeah. How do you know if you're a crochet person or a knitter? That is a good question. And honestly, I, I think it's whatever you're drawn to. Whatever mm. you look at for a pattern and you see first, and you're like, oh, that looks really fun. I want to try that. Then try it and at the end of the day what I did initially is I learned how to knit first and then once you know mm. how to do one you can actually transfer into the other quite easily and seamlessly they are very different but at the same time once you start getting the hang of it and picking it up I think you'll be able to do both yeah so what's next for you are, are you going to return to diving 
That is a good question. And I wish I knew myself, honestly. Um, I'm in that period right now where I haven't set foot on a diving board since Tokyo. But at the same time, I've been really enjoying the second passion. But I also don't want to say, oh, I'm not diving anymore. And then do the Spice Girls 10 year comeback reunion <laughs> kind of thing. So I'm just like playing it by ear right now and just seeing where life takes me. That was Tom Daly speaking with NPR's Alyssa Nadworthy. His new book is called Made with Love. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness, to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. The pleasant late fall weather sticks around tonight and into tomorrow. Tonight will be partly cloudy with temps in the low 30s. Tomorrow looks sunny with a high around 50 degrees. And Thursday, Thanksgiving is looking mostly sunny again with temps in the mid 40s. Friday will have a chance of rain and a high around 53 degrees. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station. A man who grew up in Senegal is one of the few black people to succeed in modern Spanish politics, and he's helping lead a fight against the far right. Honestly, it is a lot of pressure. That's why I have to think carefully about every single word, every step I take. It's Tuesday, November 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. NPR travels to Madrid to meet him coming up. Plus, how addressing the gender pay gap could help California reduce homelessness. And end-of-the-year book recommendations are back with more than 400 sortable titles. We'll tell you how to look for a great holiday read. Marketplace has all the day's business news coming up at 6.30. It's 6.01. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. Supreme Court today is refusing to block a request by the House Ways and Means Committee for former President Donald Trump's tax returns. More from NPR's Nina Totenberg. The court's action came in a two-sentence order, and there were no noted dissents. With all appeals avenues now apparently cut off, 
Today's action clears the way for the former president to turn over his tax returns to the House committee. While Democrats retain control of the House only until January, that is sufficient time for it to examine material Trump has long sought to block from public view. Trump filed an emergency request for the Supreme Court to intervene last month, but the court's order today leaves in place a unanimous ruling from the D.C. Court of Appeals, which said that the House committee's request for the tax returns was constitutional. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration is celebrating strong enrollment numbers in the Affordable Care Act marketplaces so far. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, people have until December 15th to sign up for coverage that begins with the new year. Last year, enrollment in the Obamacare marketplaces like healthcare.gov hit a record with 14 million people enrolling. So far this year, enrollment is on track to be even higher, says Health Secretary Javier Becerra. And he credits the increased subsidies that Congress passed in recent legislation. By ensuring that it's affordable so that four out of five people who log on to the website can find a plan for $10 or less, that's made it a great selling point. He says new enrollment is up as well, which means people who were uninsured or previously got their health insurance elsewhere are finding plans on the marketplaces this year. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. The so-called triple-demic is taking shape with respiratory illnesses spiking across the country. WPLN's Blake Farmer has more. Children's hospitals have been dealing with RSV since this summer, largely related to kids not being exposed to the respiratory virus during the pandemic. Now hospitals are also seeing a spike in flu virus infections, and COVID cases are expected to bounce as they often do when people gather for the holidays, says Dr. Tina Tan of Northwestern University. It's one after the other after the other. So um, it really is putting a major strain on hospital systems all across the United States. The American Academy of Pediatrics has asked the federal government to declare a national emergency to give them flexibility in how to respond to the pinch on hospital capacity. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. This year's holiday travel rush seems to be starting a bit early. AAA predicting nearly 55 million people in the U.S. will travel at least 50 miles from home. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 397 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Some area highways are jammed on this busy travel evening ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. The Mass Pike West is particularly slow. It's one hour and 15 minutes from Alston to 495. 95 North is slow from Weston to Linfield. That's a 45-minute trip. Other area highways are seeing typical volume. The Baker administration will open a temporary intake center next month in Devons. The shelter will be at the former U.S. Army base and can accommodate up to 60 families experiencing homelessness. The site will provide stays of a few days plus case management services before families are transferred to more permanent lodging. The state is responding to increased demand for emergency shelter due to an uptick in immigrant arrivals to Massachusetts. South Shore hospital officials say all of the patients they're caring for after a crash at an Apple store in Hingham are expected to survive. More than a dozen were taken to the hospital after an SUV crashed into the store yesterday. One person was killed. Dr. Jason Tracy is chair of emergency medicine at South Shore Health. He says people suffered significant head injuries and there were lots of bone fractures, chest traumas and injuries to arms and legs. 
So there's a long uh, road to recovery for many of the patients who are in our facility. Uh, we did transfer two patients yesterday to higher level of care uh, into Boston. Uh, I don't have an update on their condition. The driver charged with reckless homicide for causing the crash says his foot got stuck on the gas pedal. The Charles River Watershed Association released a report today that finds communities along the river will experience an appreciable increase in flooding within the next 50 years. WBUR's Paula Mora has more. Due to climate change, mid-sized storms that occur about every 10 years are expected to have higher volumes of rain. The new report says by 2070, these storms could flood critical infrastructure in Needham, Newton, Westwood, Waltham, and Watertown. Julie Wood is with the Charles River Watershed Association. The whole reason we did this project is because right now we're making a lot of decisions without having information about what the future holds. Wood says flood simulations show the communities will need a bold and regional approach combining different strategies to avoid flood damage. For 90.9 WPUR, I'm Paula Moda. Taking a look at the forecast, tonight skies will be partly cloudy and we'll have temperatures in the low to mid-30s. Tomorrow will be sunny and a little bit warmer with a high around 50 degrees. Thursday, Thanksgiving, looks like we'll have bright skies and temps in the mid-40s. Friday, things will turn wet with a chance of rain early in the day and then a more likely chance of rain come afternoon with a high around 53. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. The man who crashed his SUV into an Apple store on the South Shore on Monday now faces criminal charges. One person died and 20 were injured after 53-year-old Bradley Rhine drove his car through a glass storefront at a busy shopping center in Hingham. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer is here with the latest. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Lynn. It's nice to see you. You too. So Ryan was arraigned today in Hingham District Court. What happened there? So Hingham resident Bradley Ryan was charged with a felony, reckless homicide by motor vehicle, and he was also charged with a lesser count of reckless operation of a motor vehicle. And the judge today decided on a $100,000 bail. Now, prosecutors said he doesn't have much of a criminal record except for this one charge of driving under the influence in Vermont. That was a couple of years ago. And what are authorities saying about whether this was apparently accidental? Ryan told police it was an accident. He said he was shopping for eyeglasses yesterday morning at Derby Street Shops. That's a shopping plaza huge with more than 60 stores. And the prosecutor, Dave Cutshaw, recounted what happened next, according to uh, what Ryan told police. He stated that while driving in the area of Barnes and Noble, his right foot became stuck on the accelerator and the vehicle accelerated. He stated that he used his left foot to try to brake, but was unable to stop the vehicle and the crash through the front of the Apple store. Ryan hasn't been accused of driving under the influence. His breathalyzer test came back negative for alcohol, and he also agreed to a blood test. We don't know the results of that yet. Um, he also says he doesn't have any medical conditions that would make it hard for him to drive. And he told police that his foot once got stuck uh, while he was driving on a highway before. Uh, his attorney today called it, quote, an unfortunate accident. An unfortunate accident that led to a, a lot of victims. What do we know about them? 
Yeah, so one person died. Uh, he was 65-year-old Kevin Bradley from New Jersey, and he's a construction worker. And at the time, he was moving a barrier into the store when the SUV plowed into him and the shop he was working at the time. Um, and 20 others were injured. Most of them ended up in South Shore Hospital. Two are in the ICU there. Four others were taken to bigger Boston hospitals because they needed more specialized care. Uh, uh, Dr. Jason Tracy spoke to press today. He's the emergency. uh, He's the chair of emergency medicine at South Shore Health. And he gave an update this afternoon on the patients at his hospital. From pretty significant head injuries uh, to many orthopedic uh, injuries, including arms and legs, uh, lots and lots of fractures, uh, chest trauma. Uh, lots of uh, pulmonary injuries. Uh, And so there's a long uh, road to recovery for many of the patients who are in our facility. So the injuries are pretty serious, as you hear. But the good news is that Dr. Tracy expects everyone to survive. No amputations, as far as he knows, or none will happen. And we don't know much about the conditions of the four patients who are currently in uh, in city hospitals in Boston. Mm, but a tough time with the holidays arriving here. How has the crash affected people in Hingham? I went by the Derby shopping district today uh, just to see what it was like and how people were feeling. And I ran into Suzanne Leone, who shops there at least twice a week. Listen to her. So I was very concerned about it, and I was in the area and all the helicopters and the police cruises all over the place. So it was, you know, it gives you, it makes you uneasy when you hear something like that. So, But Leone was back to do some grocery shopping today, and despite crews, they were fixing the shattered Apple storefront today working. Um, the district felt mostly normal. There was Christmas music playing in the background, and I went into the restaurant and the stores that were near the accident site. They still had customers. and But there was one reminder of what happened. It was across the street from the accident site. I saw three bouquets of fresh flowers with a note that said, sending all our peace and love. WBUR's Yasmin Amr, thank you so much. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. On June 18th of last year, Serene Mbaye was sworn in as a member of Madrid's General Assembly. And from that moment, he became a powerful symbol of the fight against the far right in Spain. Selective admission of migrants is a shame. A man who grew up in a Senegalese fishing community, who worked in Spain for years without documentation, is now an elected political leader, one of very few black people ever to have succeeded in modern Spanish politics, and a target for the right-wing political party, Vox. In this speech, Serene talks directly to the members of Vox in Parliament and says, I don't know how to tell you anymore, so I'll say it in English. Acts of discrimination are unacceptable. All peoples must be protected equally. We do not say welcome only only refugees. We say welcome all refugees. Serena Mbaye is not only a symbol of achievement. To anti-immigrant politicians, he represents a threat. On the day he was sworn in, Rocio Monasterio of the Vox Party said, the problem isn't Serene's race, it's that he entered the country illegally. 
During Serene's campaign, the party posted on Instagram, we will deport him. That was an empty threat since he was already a Spanish citizen by then. But in some ways, that makes it even more insulting and also universal. Just a couple weeks ago, a French member of parliament was suspended for telling a colleague, go back to Africa. Serene Mbaye represents the connection among three major stories. We've been reporting on how climate change fuels global migration and that migration motivates the political far right. It's a journey that has landed us here in Serene's Madrid living room. It's full of potted plants and artwork from his children. He also has a vinyl collection that his daughter loves to play and dance to. She listens to music all the time. She gets on the couch and jumps as she listens. Sitting on that couch, he pulls up the speech on his laptop from the Spanish far-right politician. And as he listens to his colleague attack him personally, you can almost feel Serene's pulse jump. Who is this? This was your first day in the assembly. These are racist attacks, attacks that make no sense. That was more than a year ago. Has it continued every day since then, or have things gotten worse? It's every day. When I talk, they give a speech about how I am not from here. They don't want to admit that I am Spanish. And they will talk about Africa when I say something at the assembly. What does Africa have to do with Madrid? This trend is happening around the world. Far-right politicians are gaining power by vilifying immigrants. When Donald Trump announced his latest presidential run, he said, our southern border has been erased, and quote, we will be paying a big price for this invasion into our country for years to come. Italy's new government recently blocked migrants from leaving their ships, forcing a standoff with rescue organizations. In Madrid, Serene Mbaye feels this pressure every day. On the morning we meet him, he's helping to organize a festival with some Afro-Spanish artists and activists. They come out of the palatial building that houses City Hall, and we all walk together up a wide street towards a breakfast spot. The Spaniards passing us don't even try to hide their stares at a group of black people. Yes, there are many areas of the city where I notice the stairs when I'm walking down the street. And in certain neighborhoods, I would be the only black person. At the restaurant, our group orders coffee and toast. Serene quietly sips orange juice while the other guys at the table sing his praises. Now for me, Serene is the, the real expression of a type of African revolution. Justo Aliuddin, who goes by Yast, is a community activist, painter, and MC. He's known Serena Mbaye since long before the man entered politics. They met more than 15 years ago when Serene was an undocumented Senegalese immigrant working as a mantero, selling handbags and other goods off a blanket in the street. Can you describe for me the Serene you met when he was still a mantero, what he was like in those days? The man I met, I don't even remember his face really. Why? Because there is a system in which it's very difficult to meet the people. You understand? Yeah. Um, so the Serena I met, I, I couldn't see it apart from non-paper man. But why, what makes Serena special? The fact that he's, he's joining the political 
um, line in making him a lot more special. Serene, this is a lot of pressure. <laughs> I mean, you've got everybody in Senegal talking about you as like the Malcolm X of African immigrants. You have everybody here in Spain talking about you as the leader of a revolution. It seems like a lot of pressure. Yo no soy nada. Me? I'm nothing. It's all about them. It's about the brotherhood we have found here. They're the ones showing me the path. I know you're very humble, but seriously, it must at times feel like a lot of weight that you are carrying on your shoulders. Honestly, it is a lot of pressure. That's why I have to think carefully about every single word, every step I take, because it's not just me. It's the whole community. Porque todo lo que hago o digo no soy yo, es una comunidad. After breakfast, we walk to a Madrid neighborhood where lots of immigrants live, called Lavapies. One of the guys tells us, if you try to go anywhere with Serene, you'll never reach your destination because he'll stop to talk to everyone he meets along the way. And it's true, he's all handshakes and high fives. He seems to know everyone, or at least they all know him. Like Kane Sheku, who grew up with Serene in the same Senegalese fishing village. He's a role model, he says. This guy taught me how to fish when we were kids. We'd go fishing together. Serene tells us he tries to visit this neighborhood whenever he has free time. Because if I'm in politics and I don't do the things I used to do before, people will see that I have changed. In the main square, a city crew is installing surveillance cameras on the lampposts. I have not done anything. I was just sitting in the plaza. A man named Babu Halo complains that this neighborhood is already over-policed. And the police come here with their cameras. I tell them they don't have the right to record me. This has to stop. They only record the faces of black people. He tells Serene, you have to do something about this. And so this lanky 47-year-old politician feels pressure from many directions. The far right, his community in Madrid, and also the people he left behind back in Senegal. We saw that for ourselves 2,500 miles south of Madrid in the town of Kayar. Here in his hometown, Serene is a hero. And everyone here knows him. Even the smallest baby here, if you ask him, he knows Serene Daro. A spear fisherman named Khadim Ngom walks us through the sandy, unpaved streets where rising sea levels have demolished buildings that face the water. A few blocks inland, we reach the six-bedroom house where Serene's family now lives. His mother, George Uf, flashes a gold tooth when she smiles. She gets her son on the phone, and their entire conversation is about people in town who need money. This person has an unpaid electric bill. That one needs school tuition. The requests pile up. When they get off the phone, she takes out baby photos and shows us a black and white picture of a chubby infant in fancy dress clothes. Oh my gosh, he's a baby here. Did you ever think that this little baby would grow up to be a deputy in the Madrid Assembly? Never. I never thought about that. How do you think about it now? 
That's God's will. To the people in his hometown, Serene is a singularity. Nobody else has accomplished what he's done. More than 2,000 miles north of that beach where he grew up, at his living room in Madrid, I asked Serene if he feels like he's reached the pinnacle. When we were in your hometown of Cayar, Senegal, we talked to lots of people who admire you. And I remember one said, thousands of people tried to go to Spain for many years. Many don't make it. Many of those who do make it struggle. There's only one Serene. And he made it sound like you are living the dream come true. Do you feel like you are living a dream come true, or would you describe it in a different way? Honestly, this was not my dream. But in life, this is what people call destiny. The world I dream of, it's a world where people don't suffer. Because every time I think of the southern border, in the Mediterranean, every time I think of hate speech, I say there is a lot of work left to do in this world. His term as a deputy ends next year. It's not clear what will happen. But even after the thousands of miles he's traveled, everyone who knows Serena Mbaye can say for certain, his journey is not over. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the shockwaves continue as favorite Argentina loses to Saudi Arabia in the World Cup. WBUR supporters include Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, offering programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street. And the Greater Boston Food Bank, help put joy on every plate this Thanksgiving. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. Stocks finished the day slightly up. The Dow gained 1.18%, 398 points, to end the day at 34,098. The S&P went up 1.36%, landing at 4,004. And the Nasdaq gained the same amount, ending up at 11,174. In business news, there's some good news on the jobs front across Massachusetts. Unemployment rates fell in 14 labor markets across the state between September and October. Unemployment remained unchanged in seven other labor market areas. The rate rose in three local markets, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, and Haverhill. The most job gains over the last year were in the Lowell area, Greater Boston, and Lemonster. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Hi, it's Robin Young. As you give your year-end contributions to organizations that make the world a better place, how about putting WBUR on your list? Give a gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Even your old car can help fuel the journalism that keeps us all moving forward. Learn about all the ways to support WBUR and choose the one that's right for you, please, at WBUR.org. 
Should be a pleasant late fall night tonight with partly cloudy skies and a low around 33. Tomorrow, perfect conditions if you're hitting the road, rails, or skies to your Thanksgiving destination. We'll have sunny skies with temps around 50. Thanksgiving should be crisp and beautiful, sunny with a high in the mid-40s. And Friday, it looks like rain will be moving in. Right now, it's 43 degrees in Boston. The World Cup started this week in Qatar, and it has already delivered a historic upset in the form of Argentina losing 2-1 early this morning to Saudi Arabia. Argentina has been considered a strong contender in the tournament. After all, their captain, Lionel Messi, is one of the best players in the world. Joining us now is NPR's Jasmine Guards. She is host of The Last Cup, NPR's podcast about Messi. Hey there, Jasmine. Hi. I want to start with him, the player at the center of this. What what does this loss mean for Messi? A lot. Messi is one of the best players in soccer history. He's broken all kinds of records with Barca. That's his former team in Spain. But, you know, for most of his career, when he plays with Argentina, it does not go well. And this is like the bane of his existence, not being able to win a World Cup for Argentina. Now, at age 35, he's announced that this is his last World Cup. This is really his last chance. So did Argentina fall apart today or did Saudi Arabia have like their greatest day ever? What happened out there? Look, I saw an impressive performance by Saudi Arabia. They were organized. Their defense pushed hard. I also saw Argentina fall into some old bad habits, like being overly reliant on Leo Messi. Like, you know, you're the best. Go fix this. But that is not what makes a strong team. I should also mention that um, so far, one of the stars of this tournament is the VAR, the video assisted referee. Just one week in, there has been so much controversy over it, with several goals already being annulled. This is what happened to Argentina several times today. Huh. Um, Not to rub it in, but you're from Argentina. What has been the reaction from fans there from, from your house today? (laughs) That was a long sigh. (laughs) Look, if you had walked by my house at dawn today, you would have heard me screaming at the television. We take soccer really seriously, and today was a huge blow. The head coach and players have said now is the time for unity and to play even harder, but this was tough. Yeah, well, cheer. We can't count (laughs) Argentina out yet. What is next for Messi and his team? Argentina is facing Mexico on Saturday. Uh, These are two historic rivals. It's bound to be a heated game. And then playing Poland later next week. So it is hardly over for Argentina, but I'll admit this is not a good start. Not a good start. And, of course, for Saudi Arabia, the the victor today, uh, they, of course, are still trying to make it out of their round as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a great start for Saudi Arabia. They, I don't think anyone saw this coming. It was a real, I would say it's like the, the first big surprise of, of the World Cup or, or one of the big surprises. Yeah. I mean, and last thing before I let you go, I called it a historic upset in, in when I introduced you. Do you think it that is in fact true? Does it rank up there? I mean, I think that, you know, Saudi Arabia, again, like no one saw this coming. Argentina was considered and many still consider it a very, very strong contender. Uh, Yeah, I think this this is really like this is important. This is a historic upset. You're right. 
That is NPR's Jasmine Gardst, host of The Last Cup. That is our podcast about Lionel Messi and his bid to win a World Cup. Jasmine, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A pleasant crisp night on tap tonight. It'll be partly cloudy with a low around 34. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high around 50. And Thanksgiving looks beautiful, mostly sunny skies with a high in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton with state-of-the-art, fully-equipped BL2 lab space just outside Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com.